Amen. Thank you, Brandon. Our scripture passage this morning, again, comes from the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, We are not necessarily going chapter by chapter, but rather taking a look thematically uh, because there are themes that come up throughout the book. And so this morning we're going to be reading from chapter 2, which really springboards us into chapter 4, a few verses there, and then uh, chapter 6 as well. Uh, I'm not going to read all that's printed for you in your worship folder, but what is on the screen behind me or what you'll see on your uh, screen at home uh, is really uh, the heart of the text for us this morning. And so read along with me, hear the word of the Lord from Ecclesiastes. The preacher says this, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also is vanity. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. And then I considered all that my hands had done, and all the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. And then from chapter 4, I would say, therefore, better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there's no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches. So that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one. There's an evil, chapter 6, that I have seen under the sun. It lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them but a stranger enjoys them. This, too, is vanity. It is a grievous evil. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, let's play a game. You ready? This should be familiar to you because I know you've done this before, maybe when you were younger, or maybe maybe still a guilty pleasure at times uh, if you're an adult, even in your adult life. If you were given three wishes, and you could wish for anything, uh, and it would be granted to you, what would you wish for? Of course, I already heard somebody mumble the very first thing, if you're a smart person, that you would wish for would be more wishes, right? Okay, but beyond that, if you had all, so if you had all of the wishes that you could imagine, an an unlimited supply of wishes, what, what would be on your list? Uh, It's a fun, it's a fun thing to go through. We play this game because we imagine Uh, No matter how far along we get in life, we never really kick this habit. We imagine that happiness can only be found on the other side of all of our wishes coming true. But what if that was not the case? What if instead, true happiness comes from enjoying more the life you've already been given? This is the question that the preacher uh, turns to next in Ecclesiastes. He He carries out an experiment. Now, this isn't like the experiments in high school chemistry or biology where you're in the middle of it and you're like, I have no idea what this has to do with life at all. I don't know why they're making me do this. Now, this one is a matter of life and death, but it's very much the same thing. He he begins to carry out an experiment here in chapter 2, and and that's what I want you to see. And, And so the question is, where can true pleasure, where can true happiness true joy in life come from? Is it from getting all the things that your heart thinks that it wants and needs and desires? Or is it from 
learning how to enjoy more the life that you have already been given by the Father in heaven. This is the experiment. And here are the three things that we see this morning. We're going to watch and see him carry out methodically this experiment. We're going to see that ultimately the experiment results in failure. But thirdly, it does produce a hypothesis about all that learned that were not the case, but that led him to uh, his own idea about where what he was after from the beginning could be found, okay? And so the experiment and the, the failure, uh, what didn't work in the hypothesis that he arrived at, what he came to learn about how this search for joy, pleasure, delight, whatever word you would use, could possibly work. So let's look together. First, uh, in the experiment, this is all of chapter two. Now, I didn't read it all. You should go back and read it later. Uh, but really, the, the, the first verse there, verse 1, sums up everything that comes in the verses that follow. I said to my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. And then he just begins to go uh, through all through his life in various ways. Now, I would, I would kind of paraphrase it this way. He began with laughter and frivolity. He hit the party scene hard. He, he then undertook all of his Pinterest projects and completed them. He was made, uh, <clears throat> he made as much money as possible and, and found wild business success and bought all the toys he could think of. So he had the ski boat and the offshore boat and the mountain house and all the things that, you know, Central Floridians think, man, if I could just have that, life would be great. He hit the clubs and he went home with a different woman every night. He did all of these things. Verse 10, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept from my heart no pleasure. Doesn't that sound like the good life? At least that's what our culture says. Because see, if happiness is found in having unlimited individual freedom to pursue your deepest desires apart from any moral constraints, which is exactly how our culture defines happiness, happiness is this, this personal freedom and unlimited individual freedom to pursue our deepest desires apart from any moral constraints, then this guy was living the dream. He was absolutely living the dream. Now, you and I may never have the resources to actually pull it off, but the preacher did. He was king over Israel there, chapter uh, 1, verse 12. Uh, we, we take that to mean that this was Solomon, and if you've read in Kings or Chronicles about Solomon, you know uh, he was one of the greatest kings in the world at his time. He had unlimited freedom and unlimited resources. So whatever you might experiment with and where you might do it to find happiness, it would be incomplete to some measure, and therefore the results would be inconclusive because you and I, for the most part, we don't have the freedom nor the resources or whatever the case might be that this man did. But, you know, you might be tempted to think, yes, but if I had a bigger house or a different lover, or just a little bit more money in the bank, or whatever it might be. But this preacher, he had all of it. He had it all. He tried it all. There were no limitations. And it was all vanity and striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. That's his conclusion, verse 11. And so there is no need to redo the experiment. It's been tried. And yet we do all the time. We make it a way of life because we're fools. <laughs> Actually, there's something driving this endless searching uh, that we need to be aware of, uh, and we're introduced to it here in chapter 4. So, so far in Ecclesiastes, we've come across the language of striving. Over and over again, this word is used. But in chapter 4, verse 6, we're introduced to the opposite 
of striving. So look there at that verse 4, 6. Better a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after the wind. And the two are put there as opposites. So there's quietness on the one hand, and then there's toil and striving. And quietness refers to rest or contentment. It is an inter, inner state of tranquilo, of, of tranquility and calm and peace. Striving describes busyness that originates from an inner state of dissatisfaction and, and disquiet. We strive after wind. We strive after wind. Knowing that's what we're doing, but doing it anyway because inside there's no quietness and we don't know what else to do. That's the sad reality of our life sometimes. And the lesson of the proverb there in chapter 4, verse 6 is that less, with quietness, with tranquility of soul, less with quietness is better than more without it. And the other lesson is that if you're not content with what you have, there's no reason to believe that you will be any more content with having more. The question then is not, how can I get more? The question that we need to answer, the problem that we need to solve is, how can, how can I become more satisfied? How can I better enjoy what I already have? And the very first part of the answer is knowing that more is never enough. That every experience of pleasure in this life is incomplete. It leaves us not full, but actually with a greater desire for more. We're never satisfied. If you look all the way down at the very end of chapter 6 that I printed for you, verse 7, all the toil of man is for his mouth, and yet his appetite is not satisfied. There's nothing in this world that we experience that really brings this sense of inner fullness and completeness. It only leaves us wanting more. And so Derek Kidner has posited the paradox of hedonism is that the more you hunt for pleasure, the less of it you find. And I can tell you from experience that the saddest people in the world are those who have gotten all of their wishes and realize they're no happier as a result. Because once you've gotten everything you think you need and it doesn't make you any more happy, where do you go from there? It usually results in despair. And so this was the result of this experiment that the preacher carries out he says, chapter 2, verse 11, I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. In other words, the experiment failed completely. He got it all, and he was just as empty and restless on the inside as when he began, because there is no ultimate gain in earthly things. No amount of fun or experiences or money or romance could bring the kind of meaning and joy he was looking for. And he wrote this book to us, to say, don't make the same mistake that I did. Learn the lesson now. Fast forward all the way to the end. Live from chapter 12 of this book. Don't waste any more time because this cultural project that we're in the middle of, of unlimited individual freedom for pleasure seeking, is destined to fail. That's the lesson. That's the message that he has for us this morning. But the real failure uh, the, real, the real tragedy of what happens here with this man is, was not the vanity of what he gained in his pleasure-seeking, but the actual tragedy of what he lost. Or let me say it like this. If you, we've been talking about life being ga- uh, gift, not gain. Let me say it this way. If you approach life as gift, there's actual gain. But if you approach life looking for gain, if you approach life for the sake of gain, the ironic result is that there's a whole lot more loss than actual gain that, you, that you'll find. Now come to chapter 4, and here's what he says. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, 
Listen to this. One person who has no other. Neither son nor brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied. That, I just read that, and my heart, I, I just, my heart broke on the inside. Listen to it again. One person who has no other, either son or brother, and yet there's no end to his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied. This is vain and an unhappy business. Well, no kidding. And yet it characterizes so many people that we come in contact with in our, in our culture. And then, of course, right after he says that comes the famous passage that's read at weddings. Two is better than one and so forth, and a cord of three strands can't easily be broken. But what's the point here? And I think it's this, that there's a cost to choosing this manner of living. I mean, look back at the beginning of chapter 2 again. It's subtle. But he begins his experiment there in verse 1. He says, I said in my heart, come now, enjoy yourself. In other words, he, he, it's this entirely selfish, self-centered enterprise. Uh, it's the person, uh, you know, typically my age, actually, who says, you know, I've lived my whole life for others, and now it's my time. I'm going to pursue my own happiness above the happiness of others. And we, we, not, only, um, we not only affirm this, we applaud this culturally. Helen Keller, who in case you don't know her, uh, was both, um, she, she did not hear and she did not see. She once observed, she was blind and deaf at the, uh, both, and so, but here was one of the most famous things she said. She said, there is joy in self-forgetfulness. So I try to make the light in others' eyes my sun and the music in others' ears my symphony and the smile on others' lips my happiness. Now we, we used to talk that way. But not anymore. Now we say, uh, and our culture is producing people with this kind of moral compass, we say there's, there's joy only in being free to do my own thing no matter what the consequences are to others. But it's a scam. You don't gain anything from that kind of life. You only lose. And the pursuit of more typically comes at the expense of relationships is what we're told here, which is the very best part of life. And that's the wisdom of the preacher. It's innocent enough at first, but eventually you throw yourself into your selfish pursuits with such singular focus and energy that you become the person who has no other. You look around and you realize, oh, I'm all alone. Well, it's because you've been pursuing your own thing for so long. And you might get success and the wealth and the toys that you've thought so long that you've needed, but there won't be anyone to enjoy them with. And that is an unhappy business, according to verse 8. It's evil is what that word means. It's malignant. You do you. It's not a triumph. It's a cancer. So David Gibson writes this. He says, living for we, not me, means a happier, healthier me. But the pivot that has to take place for us is to reimagine life, as we've said, as gift, not gain. I hate to keep belaboring this point, but it really is what this preacher wants us to know. Because if, if because you're restless and empty on the inside and not quiet, you go about like the preacher in his autobiographical sketch here, seeking gain, trying to control and manipulate things to your advantage, trying to win to make up for your inner insecurities, or trying to get all of the things that you thought your whole life you've needed, then others are going to get hurt. In your desperate attempt to climb the ladder of career success or self-actualization, you will be happy, happy to step on the heads of whoever you must. And here's the real tragedy, even sometimes the most important people in your life. I've watched it happen. 
And it's so sad. And I was listening to a sermon by a, a pastor in, um, in um, Texas. His name's Matt Chandler this past week on this, this kind of theme. And he made a point, and it was so profound to me that I thought, you know what, I need to poll the pastors uh, that I know to just see if their experience confirms to his. And I can tell you across the board, 100%, I probably talk to a dozen pastors this week, and of the dozen pastors that I know, not, not a single one of them can report that they've ever had. This is my Father's Day application, by the way, okay? Not a single one of them can report ever having sat in an office with, you know, a, a, an adult woman or man who wanted to come and talk about how her father embarrassed her to death by dropping her off in a beat-up old car at school and it scarred her life for the rest of her life. Or how, you know, they, they, how their life was ruined because they could not take the vacation to the Bahamas that all the friends at school did. But, but he talked about how many people he sees who talked about fathers who sacrificed their families on the altar of business success or the pursuit of worldly things and the wake of tragedy in their lives for their children. I mean, it's a real thing. And this is what he's warning us. He's saying, make sure it doesn't happen to you. Make sure that you don't get all the things that you think you need and look around and there's no one, you have no other, no son or brother and there's no end to your toil, and your eyes are never satisfied. It's an unhappy business, he says. And so to make sure it doesn't happen to you, you have to stop seeking gain and start receiving life as a gift. But here's the question. Do you know the difference? It's, it's a lesson I'm having to learn, to be quite honest, because I am one who's in danger of this. I go at life for gain because of my profound unbelief, because it's part of my story you know, and, and all that. Uh, but life is achieving and not receiving in my mind anyway because it's all up to me, but not according to the preacher. That's out of touch with reality, actually. It's foolish. It's foolish, he says. You can do all the right things and get everything that you think you need to be happy and not be happy because there are no guarantees. And so, live the life you have now instead of the life you think you will have, but you would, which you actually can't control. That's his advice. There's an apocryphal story about Thomas Edison in which he was asked the repeat, about the repeated failure of one of his experiments, and his answer to the question was, I've not failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that it doesn't work. And the preacher's approach here is the same. He knows all the ways that happiness cannot be found because he's tried them all. And he knows what does not work, but all of those failures have led him to a solid hypothesis about what does work, and that's our third point. We'll finish here. And David Gibson, I think, has described it best. I've already quoted him here, but I want to do it again this morning. He says, when we accept reality, it can stop us from expecting too much from all the good things we pursue. We learn to pursue them for what they are in themselves rather than what we need them to be to make us happy. Instead of using God's gifts as a means to a greater end of securing ultimate gain in the world, we take the time to live inside the gifts themselves. Look at the text. Chapter 6, verse 1, there, there's an evil, I mean, strong language. I mean, he, he really doesn't mince words here. He says, there's an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. In other words, it's a widespread spread problem. Everybody, everybody deals with this, and here it is. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. He goes on to say the same thing three times in, in those verses in chapter 6. Verse 3, his soul is not satisfied with life good, life's good things. 
Verse 5, he enjoys no good. And so the problem is not with the pleasures themselves. The problem is the way that we seek them. In Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis imagines the command center of hell strategizing about this. Now note, if you've never read that book, the enemy is God. And so when you hear him talk about the enemy, you've got to kind of flip things around, okay? It's a little bit awkward. But listen to this. This is, this is you're getting, like, he's giving you, like, uh, you're seeing the command center of hell strategizing here. Here's what they're saying. Never forget that when we're dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. Here the demons are conspiring. They say, it is his invention, not ours. He made the pleasure. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce a single one. All we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasures which the enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. So much wisdom. So much wisdom in that. If you take a good thing, but you pursue it in the wrong way for gain, then it takes the pleasure of that good thing away. Money and wealth are not evil, but the love of money will drain all of the joy out of having it. Sex is wonderful, but outside of marriage at the wrong time, the pleasure becomes destructive. Any good, pleasurable thing, when it becomes an ultimate thing, in other words, when it becomes gain and not a gift, it will produce an ever-increasing craving with an ever-diminishing return that will make you miserable. And the only way to truly enjoy life's good things is to keep them in their proper place. Let me say that again. The only way to enjoy life's good things is to keep them in their proper place. And the only way to keep them in their proper place is to keep God in his proper place. The wisdom of Ecclesiastes is that God is the giver of life's good things and also the giver of the power to enjoy them. But the ability to be satisfied with life's good things comes from not needing them for gain, which comes from knowing that life is itself given, not gained. The Bible describes the quietness I mentioned at the beginning as opposed to striving as a result of the reality of God sitting on the soul. So in Psalm 23, for example, we know this verse. The Lord is my shepherd. If you know it, say it with me. I shall not want. What comes next? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He doesn't say he invites me to lie down. He doesn't say he, he uh, you know, he beckons me to lie down. It says he makes me lie down. In other words, Knowing that you're being protected and provided for and guided by the Lord, your shepherd takes all of the anxiety out of life so that you can stop using things that he's given you for gain and start living inside of them and really enjoying them for what they are and not for what you need them to be. See, the, the fact that the preacher could gain all his heart desired and still not be satisfied is proof that life's good things will betray us if we trust in them. Now, the good thing is, what, what, what really should be kind of blowing up our categories here is that, that Christianity is not a call to this radical asceticism and this rejection of, of good earthly things that God has given to us. That's a, that's, a, that's a betrayal of the goodness of the creation that God has made, and there really is no room for that in our faith. But the reality is that life's good things will betray us if we trust in them. In other words, if we forget that they are not the self, the sense of fulfillment and peace that we're really after, call it whatever you want. 
C.S. Lewis used the word joy, and he said that it's not in earthly things. It's not in them, but it does come through them, but always in the form of longing. In other words, always with a, with a hint of incompleteness in order because the, the reason is so that it could point us to the thing itself, that is to God himself. G.K. Chesterton famously said that every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. And that is the lesson the preacher learned, and he wants us to learn it too. But there's only one joy that can quiet your heart and, and enable you to receive and enjoy whatever life has for you as gift, and that is union with God himself. The tragedy of the world is that we are alienated from our maker. He has made us for himself, and we are restless until we find our rest in him. But here's the good news for us this morning. Here, the preacher is at a dis distinct disadvantage from you and I. Isn't that a neat thing to think? He's actually at a, at a disadvantage because we know far more than he does about the specifics of how this desire for union with God himself is possible because we know that to repair the damage done by sin, God himself decided to bridge the distance. He came into the world in the person of Jesus Christ to make it possible for God and man to not just walk side by side as it was in the beginning in the Garden of Eden, but for there to be an even deeper union than that experienced by Adam. A oneness that could satisfy every need and desire of our hearts. And this is what the John 17 passage that Brandon read is all about. That's why I chose it. We call it Jesus' high priestly prayer on the night before he was killed. His high priestly prayer, he prayed. And here I'm paraphrasing, but this is how I would sum it up for you. Here was Jesus. This was Jesus' last prayer on earth for you. Father, please bring them into the love that we share with one another so that in the experience of being loved the way we love each other, they might be made whole. And later that night he was arrested, tried, condemned, though he was innocent. Sentenced to death, nailed to a cross, not because he was an enemy of, of the state, but as a substitute for all of us who are guilty of cosmic treason against God. He died in our place to satisfy divine justice, to make things right between ourselves and God again. And now, because of all that he has done, if you put your faith in him, listen, all of the access and love and fellowship and warmth that he enjoyed with the Father can be yours too by faith. You may not know it. You may not even be aware of it. But that communion that Jesus Christ makes possible for all who follow and believe in him, that communion with God is the thing itself that C.S. Lewis spoke of. It is the longing that you feel in every other joy that is incomplete. But that once you experience it, will give you the power to enjoy all the other things as well. Now let the preacher confront you with that reality. I don't know where you are on the spectrum of faith. But no matter where you are, there's, there's something for you to consider in that. To feel the restlessness, especially if you feel the restlessness of your own soul inside, to know that what it's calling out, it's calling you out into the pursuit of union and fellowship and relationship with the God who's made you in Jesus Christ. And here's what this means. That the power to enjoy life's good things is the God-given supernatural ability, as I've said, to keep everything in its proper place. God first. And then everything else after him. Now, the closer we get to heaven, the further down the road of faith we travel, the more we progress in our sanctification, the more the longing for God 
becomes the reality of God in our lives. That's, that's what sanctification means, that this longing becomes reality, and we learn to satisfy our hearts in him. And when that happens, then the incompleteness of all of the other joys doesn't bother us quite so much. We don't expect so much out of them. We don't expect so much out of love and marriage and kids and work and all of these kinds of things. And when that happens, then we're actually free to enjoy whatever we've been given instead of wishing it away. See how that's good news? Seeking to satisfy our hearts apart from God is vanity. All of the joy and the meaning in life will slip through your grasp, but knowing that you're knowing God, knowing that knowing God is the great joy of life and seeking to satisfy your heart in him, that's true wisdom. You'll not only come to see that your life is full of good things, but you'll live with the power to truly enjoy them, not apart from him, but for his sake. Which, can I just say, which he loves. Because he loves you. Amen? Pray with me. Uh, Father, we're overwhelmed uh, at the ways we've been wrong, at the ways we've thought for so long that religion must mean uh, that you want us to be miserable and nothing can be further from the truth. You desire for us to to truly uh, experience and live into the greatest joys of life, but only because everything is in its proper order. And so we confess to you how how untrue that is, how we are so prone to raise things uh, that are not ultimate to the level of being ultimate ahead of you and to pursue them as the thing. If I I need this, I've got to have this thing even more than I need God. And when we do that, everything just gets messed up and our lives go crazy. But thank you, Lord Jesus, that in your work, you've made it possible for us to be and to remain rightly related to the Father and to have such an experience of loving and being loved in our relationship with him, that it can begin to fill up these inner empty places in our lives. And the the result would be that we would actually begin to enjoy the good things that you've given and filled our lives with because you mean for us to enjoy them. And it glorifies you. The chief end of man is to glorify you by enjoying you and by enjoying all the things that we have for your sake. Uh, There's glory for you in that and we desire that as well. So Holy Spirit, come. Uh, and, and even as we make this confession this morning, there's a, there's a turning away we still need to do, and we sing this song. But as we turn away and say, my, my, worth, is not, my, my worth is not in earthly things, but, but in my, uh, my being pursued and found by you and the relationship I now have, uh, would you confirm all that to our hearts? Will we sing ourselves to the reality of this song? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I pray that you'll just sit in the reality of that song. That's a soul realignment, that song is. Right? When your car, when you're driving down the road, your car starts to shake and you think, oh, something's the matter. You got to take it in and you got to get it realigned, right? Because something's out of balance. Something's not working right. That, 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 the movement of that song is a soul realignment back to the reality of God as the, as the true thing that our hearts desire. Amen. And so where you feel the most dissatisfaction, where you can, where your knuckles are white from just holding on to whatever it is you're trying to hold on to, uh, it is a, it is a indication that you've taken a gift and you and you're trying to squeeze gain out of it. Uh, and instead, we have to live into the promise uh, and the invitation of this benediction. The benediction is an invitation. This is an invitation to go and live in light of these words, right? And so, let me just read from Isaiah 55 as I, and then just pronounce this benediction. The Lord says, come everyone who thirsts, 
Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come by and eat. For why do you spend money on what is not bread? And why do you continue to labor for what does not satisfy? Instead, receive these words and live from the truth of them. Here is the invitation to come to God, who in Jesus Christ has uh, been become so predisposed to bless you and to turn his face towards you and to fill your life with good things. Receive this then and go in his peace, in quietness of soul, uh, to, to enjoy whatever uh, this week brings. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. Go in his peace.